0: Would you pray with me? God, it is so good to be together this morning and to worship you and to sing those words, God. They are the prayer of our heart that we would surrender all to you. God, help us to come to that place in our lives. We know it's a lifelong journey to be at that place where we surrender our will to yours, where we live each and every day by your strength. So help us in that, God. Lead us in that is our prayer this morning together in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Good morning. It's good to see you. I've been out for a couple of weeks. We had our daughter and her two kids in from California for three weeks. We had a blast with them. uh, And uh, it's just good to be back with you. And it was also a blast to listen to Danielle and Gordon teach over the last three weeks. They did a fantastic job. I just love the variety of teaching around here. And I know you do too. Uh, We're continuing our series from 2 Peter chapter 1 about these seven virtues that God wants to build in our lives. And we're looking at perseverance this morning, as Danielle said. I don't know if you're a fan of the old comedians and some of their work like I am, but I absolutely love them. Uh, George Burns and Gracie Allen were phenomenal, and Gracie Allen didn't quite get her due like George Burns did Uh, later on in her life. She was just mostly known as his wife. Uh, She was a phenomenal uh, comedian in vaudeville, uh, was just as famous as George, and she was actually as famous offstage as she was on. She had a tremendous sense of humor, loved to play practical jokes on her friends, and some of them returned the favor. Gracie was leaving her house one day, and just as she was leaving, uh, there was a knock at the door and there was a delivery for her. It was this nicely wrapped package, and so she decided to open it before she left. She popped the top on the box, and inside was a baby alligator. Completely different era, okay? Baby alligator, and it was furious having been locked in that package, and it was snapping and thrashing. (laughs) She was a little bit flustered because it was not what she was expecting, and she didn't know quite what to do with it. And so uh, she just took it upstairs and put it in the bathtub and went on, left the house and forgot all about it. Uh, When she got home later that day, there was a note on the kitchen counter from her maid. And it said, Dear Mrs. Allen, I quit. I don't work in a house with an alligator. I should have told you this when I started. I just never thought it would come up. (laughs) My guess is that every single one of us in this room has thought at some point in life about quitting too. And it may be for the same reason. You don't work in a home, you don't work in a job, you don't work in a marriage with an alligator. Difficult circumstances, difficult people seem to pop up in our life where we least expect them. And we can feel like quitting. Or maybe you're in a different place this morning. Maybe you've come this morning and you feel like quitting something you've already quit. Maybe you quit drinking. Maybe you find yourself in a place this morning and you just want one more taste. Maybe you decided to quit smoking and you're nerves and the tension around you tell you this was a really bad month to make that decision maybe you decided to quit gossiping and somewhere in the last 24 hours you heard a juicy bit of news it's just too good not to share peter understands our desire to quit he really does And I think that's why in this passage he writes these words. He says, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith, perseverance. Whenever in our journey with Christ, whenever in our walk of faith, our effort feels heroic and our results feel meager. Whenever our spiritual journey seems to hit a dead end, Whenever, for whatever reason, we enter what the mystics call the dark night of the soul, we feel that temptation to give up. And that's when the Apostle Peter, who knew a fair amount of quitting in his life, that's when Peter looks at us and says, persevere, stand your ground. It's too soon to quit. If there's a poster child for perseverance in the Bible, it would be the Old Testament character, Job. There's no better story in the Bible, I believe, to help us understand or learn how to hang in there when life gets hard. So let's dig into his story this morning and see what we can learn. In the first chapter, the very first verse of Job, it reads like this, there once was a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz, Uz, not Oz point of clarification he was blameless the bible says he is a man of complete integrity there is not a higher compliment paid to a human being in all of scripture than that singular sentence he feared god and he stayed away from evil he had seven sons and three daughters he owned 7000 sheep 3000 camels five 500 teams of oxen and 500 female donkeys. He had many servants also, and he was, in fact, the richest person in that entire region. This begins as the perfect story. Everything is exactly as we think it should be. Job loves God. He has this wonderful, wonderful life. He is a man of integrity, honored by God, honored by the people around him. The passage even goes on if you read the next few verses and tells us that he has such integrity that when his family gets together, which apparently is very often, his sons throw parties, they all get together, they get along fabulously That is, dad goes home and says, Job says, look, there might have been something that happened. My kids might have gotten into an argument. They might have done something wrong. So just in case that happened and I don't know about it, I'm going to offer a sacrifice to God for any sins they might have committed or they don't even know about so that we all stay on good standing with God. This is one spiritual dude. But trouble is coming to the land of us, As we'll soon see, Uz is a place where very bad things happen to a very good man. Suffering comes without warning and without explanation, and it creates confusion and despair. By the way, if we live long enough, every single one of us is going to spend some time in the land of us. And some of you are there this morning, and you don't know why. Job's trouble starts in verse 8, when God and Satan have this interesting conversation about Job, and it turns into this debate. God asks Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? He's the finest man in all the earth. He's blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God, and he stays away from evil. (laughs) Satan replies to the Lord, yeah, But Job has good reason to fear God. You've always put this wall of protection around him, around his home, around his property. You've made him prosper in everything he does. Look at how rich he is. God and Satan get into this verbal wrestling match. And in the end, when they're done, God agrees to let Satan test Job. And in the end, Job loses everything. All ten of his children die. He loses all of his property and possessions. All in one very horrible day. And the question becomes at that point in the story, how is Job going to respond now, now that his faith has been tested? The Bible tells us when Job got the news, he stood up and tore his robe in grief. And he shaved his head And he fell to the ground and he worshiped God and he said, I came naked from my mother's womb and I'll be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I have and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. And in all of this, Job didn't sin by blaming God. I don't know about you, but I'm amazed by his reaction. I promise you that would not be my first reaction. And if you read all 42 chapters of Job... This is very consistent with his character. Job grieves what he's lost. He doesn't deny his loss. He doesn't put on a happy face for everybody. He grieves it. He worships the God he loves, and he speaks from his heart, but he doesn't sin with what he says. And now there's a very important detail for us to remember, and we'll talk about it a little later in just a few minutes in more detail, but there's a very important detail here for us to think about, and it's critical to the story. As we move through it, Job's life is being played out on two stages. Think of it like theater in Chicago. There is an upper stage and there is a lower stage. And we see both stages. On the upper stage, there is this conversation between Job, between God and Satan. And on the lower stage, we have Job living out his life. And what happens up here impacts Job's Job's life tremendously. We see both stages. Job and his family and his friends only see the lower stage. And it's easy for us as we watch both stages to think that the critical issue in this story is what's happening on the upper stage. That it's this battle between good and evil and which one is going to win. That's not the point. In reality, the primary point has already been stated in chapter 1, verse 9, when Satan asks God the question, does does Job fear God for nothing? Satan is accusing God of being naive. Job worships you. He seeks you. He seeks what is good simply because all of this is in his best interest. He loves you The way little kids love the ice cream man. That's all. You want to test that theory? God shut off the blessings. And you'll see how quickly he curses you. You'll see how quickly he stops pursuing good in his life. You'll see how fast Job turns off his faith and devotion to you when you shut off the blessings. That's the deeper issue behind the question. Behind the challenge. It's that bigger principle. Is there such a thing as sacrificial love? Self-giving love in this world? That's the big picture in the book of Job. Satan is calling into question the very core of God's nature. And so doing, he is calling into question the foundation of our faith and our relationship with God. And only living on the lower stage? Job has no idea that any of this is going on. He just knows the catastrophes that have come in his life. Chapter 2, Satan and God continue their wrestling match. God says, so look at Job. He's maintained his integrity, even though you urged me to harm him for no reason. Satan replied to the Lord, skin for skin. The man will give up everything he has to save his life. But reach out and take away his health, and he will curse you to your face. All right, do with him as you please, the Lord says, but spare his life. And the Bible says that at that very moment, at that moment, Job was struck with sores. Some translations say boils from the crown of his head to the soles of his feet. And can I just say, this has turned into a really bad month for Job, right? <laughs> I mean, nobody blamed Job at this point if he like checked out, said I'm done, I've had it, I quit. The weight of all this presses in on Job. And he has this different response this time than the first time. It was bad enough the first time. The physical pain now is intense. And he doesn't fall to the ground and worship God this time. He just simply goes and sits on this giant pile of ashes. And in the ashes, he finds broken shards of pottery. And he grabs those broken shards of pottery And he looks at himself and he sees these open wounds that are oozing and he begins to just scrape them with the pottery. I actually have a picture of what that might have looked like. No, I don't. Um, You've got something to be thankful for, right? Don't fall asleep. I could throw it up there right now. This is an act of grieving. He simply... Tired under the weight of it all. The Bible says, still, Job didn't sin in what he said. But there's a difference in the phrasing here. Did you catch it? He didn't sin in the words that came out of his mouth, but there is something going on in his heart. I would bet my last dollar on it. He's wrestling. He's struggling. He's trying to make sense of what's happening. And I think he's struggling to hang on to his faith. So much so that Job simply sits in silence with his three friends on that pile of ashes for seven solid Days, questioning, grieving, questioning his life, questioning everything, and saying nothing. I think Satan was right about one thing in this entire story. Pain is debilitating, and it drove Job into deep despair so much so that when job finally speaks he does so with a candor that is in fact uncomfortable to read it is raw it is real it is honest and it goes dark (laughs) really quickly It's the kind of stuff that Job prays and talks at that moment that makes us, when we read it and when we say those kinds of things, go, is this really okay? Can I say these things to God? Really? The dialogue that goes on between Job and God, Job and his wife, Job and his three friends, goes on for more than 20 chapters. And it begins with Job going, God has wronged me. I get no response, he says, when I pray. There is no justice in this world. God has blocked me. When I try to move, I can't even move. He demolishes me on every side in my life. I feel his full fury. And truthfully, I feel like I am God's enemy. It's an honest prayer. It's a venting prayer. It's an I'm at the end of my rope prayer. But he's not done. That's just the start. He gets down to really specific details, which I love. He says at one point, my breath is repulsive to my wife. He's getting very specific, right? Maybe, maybe a little Eorish in his prayer. My breath is repulsive to my wife. I'm rejected by my family. Even little kids despise me. My close friends detest me. People ask me why I read the Old Testament. It's because it is brutally honest, unfiltered. I can identify when I'm struggling. I can identify when I'm happy. It's just all there. But the truth is, you can't stop with just those verses from Job and know his full story. He's pouring out his heart to God. And in the middle of that 19th chapter, those verses all came from the 19th chapter. In the middle of that 19th chapter, after he's poured out his heart to God, there is this plea, this cry from him that he says to God, But I know, I know in the middle of this, my Redeemer lives. I know. It is this man covered with sores who is so broken that his three friends walk up and can't even recognize him. Who cries out to God and says, in the middle of my pain, God, I still trust you are there. He's railing and ranting at God. And in the same moment, struggling desperately to cling to the thread of faith, he has left. It's about right, isn't it? It's about right when life has fallen apart. It's just honest. And after Job exhausts himself, after he pours out his heart to God, begs for a chance to be heard, God finally answers but not in the way he expects. God comes to this man who's lost everything and speaks to him in a tornado. Really, God? He comes to Job in strength and says to him, who is this that questions my wisdom with ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man because I have some questions for you and you're going to have to answer them. Not quite what we expect when we're broken, right? And God speaks for a long time. And he doesn't do what we would expect. He doesn't answer Job's questions. He comes with his own. He doesn't explain what's been happening on the upper stage so that Job will understand. He simply asks questions that Job cannot possibly answer. But the questions do speak to Job's questions. They speak to the deeper issue that is this thread that runs through this book. Is there such a thing as sacrificial love? Or is God only looking out for himself like every other selfish person on earth? And the answer to that question will tell Job if he should hang in there or bail on his faith. God says, Job, who created the channel for the torrents of rain that fall? Who laid a path for the lightning? Who makes rain fall on a barren land? Who makes it fall in the desert where no one lives? In Job's situation, he lived in the Middle East. Rain is a precious commodity. You don't waste water ever. And so the thought of sending rain on a desert where nobody lives, it's wasteful. Why would God do that? Because God has more than enough to give for that and everything we need. Because God is gratuitously good, uncontrollably generous, and irrationally loving. Because we serve a God who would create a wilderness that nobody may ever see just on the chance we might that has this magnificent river running through it with gorgeous flowers all around it just because he's irrationally loving and god goes on for four chapters with those kinds of observations and questions for job with crazy aspects of creation to drive home the point to to Job that he is good, that he is gracious, that he is loving, and that Job's point of view is just limited and finite. (laughs) God says, Job, think about the ostrich, which really is a bizarre thing to say to a man who's covered in boils and sitting on ashes. Think about the ostrich. And he goes on for a few verses saying to Job, it's a crazy bird. It has wings, but it can't fly. It lays its eggs on wide open sand and doesn't build a nest. It leaves them there to be incubated by the sun and takes no care of its young. What possible use is that bird? And yet, when that bird stands up to run, she passes the swiftest horse with its rider. Why in the world would God give that kind of talent to a stupid bird like that? We don't understand. Job, think about the behemoth, which we understand now to be the hippopotamus. It's a pointless, dangerous animal, right? In our eyes. We can't domesticate the hippopotamus for farm use. We haven't yet to figure out a use for the hippopotamus. In Africa, the hippopotamus today kills more people than any other animal. In Job's day, it was considered a chaos monster that had to be destroyed. How does God look at the hippopotamus? Job tells us. He ranks first among the works of God. God said, the day I made the hippopotamus, my my A game was going strong the best thing I ever did we don't understand and God goes on through four chapters going look at the creation I made I made a wild ox that'll never be made to plow I made a wild donkey that'll never be tamed I made wild sheep and goats who will give birth to their young in the tiny crags in the mountains that no man will ever see why do you know why Job no you don't understand. You don't understand a lot, I do, Job. Now, at this point in the message, there's two questions you may be asking. Why in the world would God give these answers to Job? And what in the world does this have to do with perseverance? So come back next week. No, that's not Two things. First, Job's story is our story. We have the same challenge today that Job had thousands of years ago. We live our lives on the lower stage every single day. We have the challenge of living on this lower stage and trusting God who lives on the upper stage Trusting his goodness, trusting his sacrificial love, trusting that this God who is generous and loving, irrationally so, cares about us in our lives. And trusting that our knowledge is finite and his is much grander than ours. And we, like Job, forget that at times and need to be reminded It's why all the virtues that Peter talks about in 2 Peter 1 begin with a simple statement. Add to your faith. The faith that God is loving and gracious and good is where it all begins, and it alone is what enables us to persevere. Second... God is saying all of this to say to Job, following me is worth it. Don't give up. The pain will not last forever. I see beyond your pain that you're in, and it is just a moment in time. Hang with me. I'm bigger than your circumstances. Stay with me because I'm a God who is gratuitously good, uncontrollably generous, and irrationally loving. And he is a God who gives for no reason at all. It's just his nature. In the tough times, a faith that believes in that will help us hang in there. It's not a faith that our circumstances will work out for the best. That's not faith. It's a faith in the very nature of God that enables us to persevere, even when we don't understand what's happening in the land of us. I still believe that the book of Job needs a warning label, though. Because not every story will end up like Job's did. The last words in this dialogue between God and Job belong to Job. When he says to God, I'd only heard about you before, but now I've seen you with my own eyes. I take back everything I said. I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. Not every story ends that way. Not every faith hangs on when life gets that tough. God rewards Job's faith by restoring his riches, double what he had before, by giving him seven more sons, three more daughters. Not every story ends that way either. But the life of Job does answer those two big questions for us. Is there such a thing as sacrificial love on both stages? On God's part? Absolutely, yes. And can a human being hold on to God with a sacrificial love, even in the toughest of circumstances? Job's story tells us one man could, one man did and it gives us hope. Job lived his life without seeing the upper stage, not knowing that his faithfulness had meaning beyond his wildest dreams, that something cosmic and eternal was at stake in his little life as he sat there on that ash heap scraping his skin with shards of discarded pots. He was broken, he was sick, he was mocked, he was doubtful, he was hopeless. And there was no way that he could have known that his stubborn, confused faithfulness was being used to validate God's cosmic plan. Nor could he have known that his adventure would have been used for thousands of years by millions of people who were making their own journey through the land of Oz. I don't know what awaits us, you and me, in our journey through the land of eyes. I don't know if it's brokenness, aloneness, sickness, failure, loss, depression, heartache. I don't know what it is. But I do know this, that our good and gracious and generous God promises to be with us in the land of us to go with us to stand beside us and be waiting for us on the other side so dig in hold on hold on with courage and hold on to the truth more is at stake in your life and mine than we can possibly imagine